This is Cybok, the cybersecurity body of knowledge, distilling the knowledge from internationally recognized experts and providing foundational education and training for the cybersecurity sector. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Joining us today is Tyler Moore, professor of cybersecurity at the University of Tulsa. Today, we're discussing the Security Economics Knowledge Guide. So today we are talking about uh, the Knowledge Guide uh, Security Economics. Um, can we start off with some high-level stuff here? What prompted the creation of this particular guide? So what prompted this guide was the recognition that cybersecurity uh, is a multidisciplinary field, and uh, it's one in which uh, economics has actually a lot to offer in explaining why security uh, fails and how it can be improved. Uh, there's actually a very dynamic research community organized around the workshop on the economics of information security, uh, which was established in 2002, where this group of scholars have kind of come together from different disciplines, from computer science, economics, other social sciences, to try to understand and explain uh, the challenges that face security. And in looking at this, it's sort of been recognized that many of the problems in cybersecurity come down to not a problems with uh, the particular technology, the details of the encryption mechanism, uh, the, you know, whether certain security controls have vulnerabilities. What really matters is often the incentive that defenders have in making the appropriate investments to protect their assets and also the incentives for attackers to target people in carrying out attacks. So mm. that's, that's kind of what set, set this whole field in motion and what has culminated in this knowledge guide to kind of summarize the contributions of this research community to date. Well, let's go through it together here. I mean, one of the, the early uh, sections here actually highlights security failures and, and what goes into that. Uh, can you give us some insights on this particular segment? Absolutely. So, you know, we know that security failures happen. Um, you know, all you have to do is read the news or follow, uh, follow this fine podcast. Many times we're talking about the latest breach, the latest uh, attack, um, that when systems that systems seem to be failing quite often, and this is uh, a little bit puzzling uh, in this because we are paying a lot more attention to cybersecurity than we ever did before. Right, so there's lots more investment, lots more attention being paid to try to prevent attacks from succeeding, and yet they continue to do so. The purpose of this section is to explain why, from an economic perspective, so many of these security failures happen. I can walk through several of the explanations that, that we cover. Um, the first and most basic and profound is this misalignment of incentives that can take place. Computer systems fail often because the person or the organization in charge of protecting that system doesn't have a strong incentive to take investments uh, against security seriously. Uh, there's a classic example that in many ways kickstarted this field, which was the security of retail banking in the 1990s. I'll tell you what happened there. You know, in the U.S., 
banks have long been responsible for uh, payment card fraud, so ATM fraud and credit and credit card fraud. There, there are actually regulations in place that that oblige the banks to uh, reimburse customers whenever fraud takes place. But not all countries have those same regulatory protections in place. And uh, one large country whose regulations used to be quite different was the United Kingdom. There, you had much more favorable regulations towards banks. And so they, they were in a position to often blame customers whenever money would go disappearing at the ATM. And so what we saw there was, you know, technologically, the the security and IT infrastructure was very similar between the US and the UK banks. And yet, in the United Kingdom, much higher rates of fraud took place as opposed to the, to the United States. So there's an incentive explanation for this in the sense that U.S. banks had a strong incentive to root out and prevent card fraud because they were the ones paying for it. And so they invested in the technologies to actually prevent much of that fraud from from succeeding. Whereas in the United Kingdom, that incentive was weaker because they could share the losses of those um, frauds with customers by not always reimbursing, uh, not not at nearly the same rate in the United, United States. And so so there's a sort of first historical example of how uh, incentives really drive um, security outcomes. And you know, from there, we, we cover other examples looking at things like critical, critical infrastructure systems. We have the, the industrial control systems that control much of our critical infrastructure, like electric grid and so forth. We, we've seen lots of spectacular attacks on those systems, like uh, the Stuxnet example being the most famous one. Um, but What's interesting about that example is that we have a clear understanding of what, what it would take to secure those systems. You need to have air gap systems that are not remotely accessible, particularly for the most uh, sensitive technologies like the process control systems that can be programmed. Uh, and yet, we know from experience that most operators do connect those systems to the internet in an insecure fashion. And they do that because there are clear benefits to doing so. You're able to remotely administer systems. You're able to reduce your overall maintenance costs. And so these benefits are real, but the risk of of an attack is something that is not entirely felt by the organization itself. So if, if, if an attack were to succeed and the power goes out, it, it's bad for the utility, for instance, but it's also a lot worse for their customers. And so hmm. um, we, we do see uh, these the, the same kinds of misaligned incentives appear time and again. Wow. You know, a question that I often ask folks that I interview is, how do you measure success? And, and, and that's one of the, the real key areas here is measurement itself. How do you measure security? C- can we go through some of the details there? Sure, absolutely. So security measurement is one of the key challenges that researchers and practitioners face because we know there's best practices for what we should be doing, but being able to successfully measure um, the risk that is present is quite quite problematic. And that, that actually leads to one of the other main market failures that's present here, which are information asymmetries. And so if, if we are unable to sort of measure the security of a system or the security of a piece of software, this actually has all these distorting effects inside the market. Um, and um, 
in particular with these information asymmetries, what happens is you end up with the thing that's hard to measure not being prioritized. And so for in the case of security, it can be very hard for a buyer of a piece of software to determine if it's actually secure or not. And so it's much harder to determine that than, say, the price, how easy to use it is, how well it integrates with the other systems. And so because of that, we, we, don't, we, we don't see enough investment in actually providing a secure software and secure products because it's not rewarded in the marketplace. One sort of cl- great example of this is the SolarWinds um, attack that happened um, a, a few years ago. Uh, and there you had a piece of software that was, that was um, actually quite insecure, had lots of vulnerabilities, but it, this software was ubiquitous. It was purchased by most of the large companies and government agencies in, throughout the world. And it was a useful piece of IT software, from, but this software actually had lots of vulnerabilities, many of which were exploited by this, in this spectacular attack um, that was tied back to a nation state where they were able to uh, essentially use that as a way to sidestep into compromising the security of the IT systems for many of the most sort of leading companies and government organizations across the, across the world. So if these large organizations are not able to measure the security or evaluate the security of products that they're going to buy in advance, what hope do the SMEs and the smaller organizations have in being able to measure that security in advance themselves? And so we end up with these sort of poor, uh, poor security uh, rated products because it's not something that can be easily observed. Is it fair to call that a, a bit of a blind spot? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, an economist jargon would be a market failure, but a blind spot is, is, is another way of, way of uh, interpreting it. And you know, th- these, these, these blind spots appear, um, which make it hard for the market to function properly. So the, the other market failure that comes up in a lot in cybersecurity uh, is something called an externality, which is a side effect of a, of a transaction. So the classic example of an externality uh, is environmental pollution. Someone goes out and, you know, a factory produces some widgets, dumps some sludge into the river. Uh, if that sludge does not have to be adequately priced in, then there's, you get an overproduction of the widget and you get an overproduction of the pollution. And cybersecurity, we see externalities all the time because insecure computers and systems are often used as launch pads for attacks on third parties. Think of botnets that are used to send out email spam to launch denial of service attacks. Those computers that are, that are hacked and in the botnet, their harm is being directed outward towards someone else. And so whenever you have these externalities, it's hard to actually get an adequate res- response economically and an investment that you need to have to improve security. Hmm. The next level uh, in the knowledge guide refers to firm-level solutions. I, I have to admit that that uh, one doesn't have a lot of meaning to me. Can you explain <laughs> it for us? Sure. So, so basically, up to now, in the first sections of the guide, we talk about how the security economics community has identified several problems with cybersecurity um, that are e- economic in nature. And so 
the question is what should be done about it, right? And so there, there's, there's two kinds of responses, a private level response and there's a public response. And firm level solutions refers to the private level response. So how can a firm respond to and manage cybersecurity within, within their organization? Um, and so typically what that means is you have attempts to um, measure uh, security directly. So there's, there's, a, there's an attempt to construct metrics of security. And these metrics are ways that you try to quantify security at the level of the firm. And there has been some success in that, in that respect, but I, I'd say we actually have a long, long way to go in, um, in doing that well. Uh, instead, what has tended to happen is you have more emphasis in and following frameworks like the NIST cybersecurity framework and mm. uh, the critical controls. These are process-oriented frameworks where you're not necessarily measuring security itself. And instead, what you're doing is you're following these codified best practices. And this, this is you know, sort of the state of the art within the industry. It's unfortunately pretty inadequate to deal with um, these uh, market failures that, that, are, that are present. Wow. The next uh, section is about market-level solutions, which I suppose makes sense that that would follow the firm-level solutions. Yes. So, I mean, this is where I think there's more promise. Uh, So, essentially, you know, what, what, if anything, should be a public sector or government-level response to these market failures? And, um, you know, we're seeing the maturation of cybersecurity um, industry over the, over the past you know five to ten years, you have governments who are taking this much more seriously. But then the question arises: you have their attention, but what should we do about it? And there there are a range of options. The first option is pretty traditional: is something called ex ante safety regulation, where essentially the cost and harm that would result from a cyber attack is so great that there is a need to regulate the behavior to prevent the bad thing from happening. And so we often see this called for in the context of critical infrastructure. You know, our, our critical infrastructures, should an attack succeed on them, would be so dire that there, there's a need to follow some baseline level of security. Um, we, we, see that we see some safety regulation in a few contexts, particularly in the financial sector side, but we don't, we don't see it used very often. Another, another Sort of flip side of that would be ex post liability, where you you wait for the bad thing to occur, and then you assign responsibility uh, to the actor uh, to fix that problem. So, you know, we see this discussed but not used extensively in the context of um, software liability. So, should anyone be held responsible for bugs that are found in software that can be used for uh, used for attacks? So, you know. Going back to my example of SolarWinds, you know, you know today SolarWinds really w- couldn't have been held responsible for the vulnerabilities that they introduced in their software base. Um, but you know, one policy intervention that's possible is to actually change that to say, well, if you sell software that has significant vulnerabilities that are present, then well, it's, it's your fault if something goes wrong. Um, you know, we we see liability used in many other non-cyber cases, um, you know, things like vehicle security, you know, sorry, we see it in the context of, um, you know, car safety, right? So it used to be the case that car manufacturers 
didn't weren't really held responsible for in unsafe vehicles causing uh, accidents, but they are liable now, which has led to a lot more um, investment in trying to make the make cars safer. The question is, could we use something similar in the cyber context to improve the cybersecurity of of software and services? One area that I'll touch on briefly. Uh, where we have seen some success in trying to remedy an information asymmetry is information disclosure. So mm. um, this actually started quite a long time ago. Back in 2002, the state of California required um, anytime a organization uh, loses the uh, personal information of a citizen of California, they have to notify that citizen about it. And the, the idea is you're trying to remedy this information asymmetry because prior to that time, a data breach occurred and you, you didn't even know that it had happened. And so these information disclosure laws, they don't assign any further responsibility or penalties associated with it. They just say you have to let the customer uh, or the citizen know that their information has been breached. And this, you know, is has been wildly successful uh, in the sense that nearly every state in the United States and now the European Union has a data breach notification law. And these do go a long way towards rem- remedying the information asymmetry that exists about data breaches. Um, you know, we, we now know when a data breach happens because it gets disclosed and it hits the news. Uh, it used to not be that way. And, and that's, it's because of this, these policies in place that now require that disclosure. What people don't often realize is that those breach notification laws only apply narrowly to breaches of personal information. So there's whole classes of cyber attacks where there is no obligation to disclose. And so there's still a lot we don't know about cyber threats because uh, it's not required by law to to be disclosed. Hmm. There's a section here on government failures. What, what does that entail? Well, it's kind of wrapping wrapping up. You know, we say there's there's a lot of promise that exists uh, in terms of the pu- public sector action to try to help remedy these market failures, be it through information disclosure, reliability, or safety regulation. But we ha- you have to be careful in how you actually implement those because um, there are many things that can be done where the government actually makes the problem worse. <laughs> so, uh, so, and so we kind of acknowledge that possibility and it certainly exists within cybersecurity. There's the potential for regulatory capture, which means, you know, the regulator becomes overtaken by the interests of the private sector organization that's being regulated. Um, and so I'm not, it's not to say that we've seen that yet in cybersecurity, but it's definitely something to watch out for. So, Essentially, it's kind of a caution against over-relying just on um, the public sector to remedy remedy the problems that exist uh, in cybersecurity. You know, it, it's really a fascinating lens uh, with which to view cybersecurity. As I was reading through this, I was I'm picturing you know an economist, you know, someone trained in that discipline, uh, looking through the way that things are done in cybersecurity and ruefully shaking their head, you know, <laughs> from their yeah. own point of view. Is that fair? Is that a fair, a fair assessment on my part? Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, no market is perfect and cybersecurity is no different. I think there's a real opportunity for economists to engage here in this space. And so it's, it's a challenge because 
you do need the domain knowledge in cybersecurity, which requires some sophisticated understanding of the technology. But there's a real opportunity to make a big impact because so many of the problems aren't actually technological in nature. They are economic. And that's, if nothing else, what I want readers to get out of this knowledge guide is that you can, if you understand cybersecurity problems as being economic and not just technical in nature, that opens up a whole new realm of possibilities for what the solutions could be. Our thanks to Tyler Moore for joining us. You can check out the entire Security Economics Knowledge Guide on our website, cybok.org. This podcast is a product of the University of Bristol. Cybok is funded by the UK National Cybersecurity Programme and led by the University of Bristol's Professor Awais Rashid, along with Professor Andrew Martin, Professor Steve Scheider, and Dr. Yulia Cherdanseva. The Cybok Podcast is produced by The Cyberwire with senior producer Jennifer Iben and Bristol University's Helen Jones. The executive producer is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.